Welcome to the When I Grow Up podcast with me, Katie Filey. Each episode, I interview a guest about the trials, tribulations and joys of growing up. My guest this episode is Man Repeller's deputy editor, Hayley Narman. A 2011 business graduate, Hayley started her career as an office manager in Silicon Valley before forging a successful path in human resources at a design firm. While her life in San Francisco was rather rosy, she couldn't help but wonder what life would be like in New York City pursuing her dream of being a writer. This was the one what if that she couldn't leave unanswered. After hearing that Man Repeller was hiring, she sent founder Leandra Medine some writing samples from a blog she'd been writing beyond her day job. Much to her astonishment, she was offered a junior writer position. She packed up her San Francisco life and boarded a plane to the Big Apple, where she has now lived for almost three years, and during which time she has risen to the position of deputy editor. Haley lives in Brooklyn with her adorable cat Bug. He's got an Instagram account at bug.tv, and trust me, you will not regret following him. Haley Narman, welcome to the When I Grow Up podcast. Hi, welcome to me. <laughs> no, it's great to have you here. Um, I really appreciate you like slumming away up those four flights of stairs or three flights of stairs up to this boiling hot apartment. It was honestly an <laughs> honor. Thank you so much for inviting oh, me. Oh, no. I'm so happy to me be in here. Your, in your week. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. So I'm going to begin with the question I ask everyone, which is, tell me about a younger Haley. What did she want to be when she grew up? Oh, man. What did I want to be? I think I was very confused, and I generally just wanted to be famous in some sense. <laughs> I was talking with Leandra about this the other day, and she was like, I always had a feeling that I would be famous. And I was um, sort of had this flashback to like maybe five years ago when I had said to my friend Max, like, I mean, you thought you were going to be famous when you got older, right? Like, everyone <laughs> thinks that. And he was like, no. <laughs> and I was like shocked that everyone didn't think <laughs> they were going to be famous. <laughs> was there some part of you that thought you'd be famous when you got older? When you were I, th- I think it, there was. There was. Yeah. So when I was 13, I interviewed Madonna on Newsround. Oh it was like God. a TV program and I had a taste of it. So That's maybe a I did. In. Yes, maybe I did feel from that. I don't know. Maybe but, this is more common than I thought. No, I don't know. But you are, you are kind of in the sense you have a platform oh. and you're known. But did you not know what you'd be famous for, but you just thought you'd be noteworthy? Honestly, yeah, it was just my little ego. I think at, at the time, I mean, I remember even in second grade, I thought that I could solve any math equation. Like, <laughs> it, it, like anybody could give me any equation and I could just, with enough, t- enough time, figure it out. You were invincible. <laughs> I was so, com- like, I was so confident. Of course, that um, tapered off quickly <laughs> as I got older. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think as a kid, my... Um, belief in myself was so strong and I you know I thought I could be a singer I remember singing Christina Aguilera songs and thinking that I sounded just like her which is absolutely not true I used to remember singing in the street and I don't think I've ever admitted this thinking that a talent scout would just hear me singing one like on the street and be like we should just sign her up oh my god I think talent scouts that is such a fantasy of of young people you just think think you're gonna be plucked out of crowd one day oh my god I think it's maybe the influence of like pop idol and all those shows that we probably were of our generation where like the quick the quick fix fame kind of thing but oh my god I remember my uh two of my best friends like the three of us were sort of a trio growing up and um I remember they'd invited me to go to some sort of farmer's market and I was 
even a little introvert at the time, like didn't feel like it. I wanted to stay home and read or whatever. Mm. And they went and they got model scouted. Oh my God. That was like <laughs> the myth, wasn't it, of the time? Yeah, I was like so devastated. Like for sure thought that if I'd been there, I would have Yeah, you would have outshone them all, wouldn't you? It's so funny thinking now. So but it's yeah. interesting that you didn't think, you didn't have like a particular career. You just had like a, a something that you wanted to like to be in terms of, the like abstract notion of being famous basically. Yeah, it was just, yeah, yeah, it was absolutely ab- abstract. I think when I got older and I got more opinionated, I sort of had an opinion on everything, mm. which um, I was sort of like privately arrogant about my wisdom, <laughs> most of which I shudder at now. But then then I, I think it sort of manifested that I wanted to be like, I wanted people to care about what I thought. And I mean, ultimately you do need a little bit of that to become a writer. Definitely. <laughs> um, it takes some gumption and sort of some like narcissism and self-belief to put out ideas and act like they haven't been said a million times, which most of them have. <laughs> so, yeah, and, it, and it, you're putting a lot of yourself into something as well and opening yourself up for potential criticism or, you know, you're, you, you are on a platform. So in a way, yeah, all of, all of this, these kind of formative, you know, moments and thoughts have culminated in what you do. Sure, I think that that's true. I mean, you know, I think I'm sort of, I'm a lot of contradictions because it, my parents also instilled a sense of um, crazy discipline and sort of, you know, pursue stability and uh, financial security at all costs. At all costs might be an exaggeration, but I was very, I was very much like ushered in that direction and, um, it sort of was at odds with this idea that I was um, somehow destined for something greater. And that kind of push and pull really um, informed a lot of my sort of angst in my 20s. Um, or, I mean, all through kind of my late teens, for that matter. College, those first working years, etc. So the push towards what your parents expect and the, the stable side of things versus the kind of, I guess the wild and reckless abandon of what if I could do anything. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it was also another way to phrase that binary is just like business versus creative. Mm. I studied business in college and um, I actually probably shouldn't blame all of it on my parents. I'm also just, I've been realizing this in therapy because I keep blaming all my self-discipline on my parents. And then I remember that my parents always thought I disciplined myself too much and they like had to tell me to cool down when I got like an A minus and stuff. So you like set high standards for yourself and you I like did. you like structure in that sense. Yeah, so, so I suppose it's in me as well, this push and pull. Mm. Um, and that's I think why it's been really interesting for me to have had sort of, have been in this sort of stable business career and the less stable creative career. Um, it's been really interesting for me to experience both after being so um, conflicted about which I wanted to pursue. Yeah, and which parts of yourself you discover and learn about in yeah. each place. Which I wanted to honor, yeah. you know? That's a great segue into the first kind of area which we want to discuss, which really is that, you know, like you said, that former career that you had, because now you're obviously deputy editor at Man Repeller, mm-hmm. and you have been now for, is it two and a half years? Yep, that's About two exactly and a half right. years. Mm-hmm. And we're going to dig into that in a bit, but I think that transition that you made from what you said, the bit like stable 
traditional business environment. You used to work in HR in San Francisco, and then mm-hmm. you took a big leap of faith and moved to New York and had, got a job at Man Repeller. Tell me a bit about your former life. What did working in HR entail? So I originally sort of worked... Um, I got into HR after a couple years working. Mm-hmm. My first job was as an office manager at a tech startup. It was kind of the cliche San Francisco experience. And I had, you know, I'd graduated with a business degree. I had this sort of moment of flirting with um, pursuing more education in a creative field so that I didn't have to just take a sort of bland businessy job. And I only say bland because my particular studies, um, were just not very focused. So I was, the jobs that were available to me were very, bland is a harsh word, they were very general. They were a little bit like anyone can um, sort of fit themselves into it Mm because it would be like good with people, good with um, spreadsheets. Actually, that's not everybody. (laughs) But um, that's probably not the best example. But it was, there were these sort of general job descriptions and I wanted to pursue job descriptions that asked me asked more of me but I just didn't have those qualifications or I didn't feel I had Mm. them I applied to these art schools and they were just so expensive my dad was like you can take out loans we're not helping with this and that's when I had to come to this decision of like was I willing to sacrifice for a creative career and at the time I just decided I wasn't um but in hindsight that was kind of a false dichotomy because asking someone to go into tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to pursue a creative career is a tall order. Um, ultimately, I discovered there were other ways, but um, I got a job as an office manager. I liked the environment because I got to like ride a scooter around the office. It was very oh, cool. Silicon Valley <laughs> cliche. Um, and when you're fresh out of college and you're just you're earning for the first time, it must have been fun. Oh, yeah. I thought it was so cool. Um, I didn't love the actual role. Um, I kind of felt like I was just taking orders from everybody in a way that was, I felt like an intern a little bit. I was a little bratty at that time. (laughs) I can't imagine it. I was just sort of like, everyone's treating me like dirt. Uh, like, and so when you've I, been through the education, like you don't, you feel like you you worth you're worth more, don't you? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I was also just so entitled. I didn't know anything, though, mm. you know. And so I think I was, I don't know what I really wanted because I, I didn't have that much to offer in the way of pers- business perspective or experience. But I thought that people should want to hear from me on those fronts. Um, after six, oh God, no, not six months. After a year. Um, This is getting way too detailed. I'm going to speed up. (laughs) But after a year, that company got bought by Google and I left for another startup um, where I worked for six months and was fired. What for? Um, I mean, I thought it was because the CEO was a jerk, which was a popular opinion around the office. But um, ultimately, I don't think I was doing that well in that role. I, it was a ton of multitasking and, um, I just, I remember him saying to me, you should be a writer. That's interesting that they noted that. I know. Well, I, I had started this kind of side project where I interviewed people for our blog Mm. and I sort of asked these quirky questions and wrote these little intros and it was a little space for me to be creative in the role. 
And he just thought I was great at it and was like, you should do that. I was so irritated on him at the time because I thought that um, he didn't see me, but maybe he did. I don't know. But after that, I, um, I was devastated, of course. And I decided as an office manager, I had been, I dipped my toe in so many different fields. I had really kind of liked the HR stuff. So mm. I pursued a more specific HR role. And then I did that. I got a job at a design firm and I really blossomed there. And I thought I had a career in HR. Um, I was promoted twice and I kind of, I was there for a little over three years. And um, I thought I might stay there, but I couldn't shake this feeling that it wasn't quite right. But, but the job was interesting. I was challenged. I liked mm. my coworkers. I was obviously being really recognized. I think that there, I was viewed as having a really interesting approach to problem solving and like people strategy. And um, that was really recognized there. I was like continually held up and mentored and encouraged, et cetera. So I was, it was sort of the dream. I was also making, uh, you know, I doubled my salary in the three wow. years I was there. It's really hard sometimes. So I think that's one of the biggest things, like the myth is that you have one calling, but the reality is you could be really good at lots of things. And it's kind of like, why would you, you know, you must've been gripped with this idea of, well, this could be it. And I, this, I could probably be quite happy here versus, oh, God, yeah. oh I have a bit of a urge to do something else. Yeah. And I had that sort of, I had that feeling about everything in my life at the time. I had that feeling about San Francisco, which was that it was good, but there was just something that it wasn't doing for me. Mm. And I felt like that about my relationship too. So I had this kind of, this whole life that was sort of, I would almost call it like easy and calm and supported and good. But on all fronts, I had this sort of honestly terrified feeling that I, that it wasn't right. Um, and it's, you know, it's easy for me to sort of diagnose it in retrospects. Mm. And I've talked about this recently, which is, you know, I, if I'd stayed in that situation, I might have changed something and fixed that or like found a reason to newly appreciate my role in my relationship with the city. I just decided not to stick around and find out. Tell me about the process in which you kind of, it started the seed of an idea and then really started germinating into something that was like, right, I'm going to take action on this. It took a really long time. It was, um, I, you know, I didn't really, even though that boss who fired me said I should be a writer, even then I was like, what? No, I'm going to be a writer. Did you never believe that was even an option? Of course, definitely not. Mm. Um, I, I mean, there are some, I meet some of these kids sometimes and they're like, I've known I wanted to be in like media, women's media journalism or since I was 16 and I'm like, wow, I just didn't even have exposure to that. Mm. I wasn't, or I didn't seek it out. You know, I was like playing soccer and not really reading. I mean, not really reading, um, online, like media journalism. I was just reading like yeah, for fun, Harry Potter yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. So I think I always liked to write and, you know, now I can sort of, write the narrative of why I became a writer. You know, I was always furiously journaling. In high school, I like got really good feedback on my writing. And in college, I remember a teacher submitted a piece to be like to have an award. And I remember 
I wrote this other piece that like my family passed around and everybody read it because they liked it so much and I still wasn't like I'm a good writer <laughs> that wasn't it's, it's amazing how you can like you know you've written about the narrative arc and how it's like with all, all history you can cherry pick everything totally. put it all in a line and it all makes sense but at the time it's just amazing that you didn't see it I know but the thing is is like I could have done if I had had a successful career in HR I could have mapped why yeah, I was good at HR that's so true if I had done graphic design I could have been like I liked art even when I was five you yeah. know it's like you I can think, find the facts to support your argument basically <laughs> absolutely and I think that people forget that that's true and I, I I can say I always wanted to be a writer I just don't think that's necessarily true and I um it took me a long time to get there I in it, when I was work, working in HR, I decided, I started looking at roles that had, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just started looking at companies I admired and seeing what their open roles were and seeing if they had like creative project manager. <laughs> Something that was sort mm. of like parlayed my skills into a slightly more creative context, stuff like that. And as I, as I started doing that, um, kind of learning where my blind spots were, trying to teach myself. I remember for a while I was like, I'm gonna be a graphic designer, because I worked at a design firm. I took these like online design courses. I asked a creative director to give me feedback on my designs. I started like doing it all nights and weekends. I was very serious with my graphic design <laughs> career. Well, it reminds me of that piece that you wrote really recently about, it was like an unpopular or a new opinion on internships and how actually it's just being interested and having a breadth of interests that can help shape yeah, I mean, and I think it can be, that's just the case for some people. I mean, mm. some people doing internships really helps them. I was just trying to sort of offer an alternative narrative. Because yeah, it's really interesting. For me, it was, it was just, it was not being apathetic. I really, I just cared about figuring it out. Um, but sometimes that came in the form of just listening to lots of podcasts or like reading tons of blogs or um, taking random classes. And it was never... A lot of it was just experimental. Did you ultimately believe that there was an answer, but it was just you were on this, it was like an anthropological experiment on Haley. like this, I need to find, figure this out, so I may as well figure it out by doing. That's a really good way of putting it. I think I spent a long time wringing my hands and thinking about it. And a lot of times, at least for people like me, I think you think you can think your way into an answer. That's just usually not true. And it's why you can't just glean wisdom by reading it, by realizing it, or forcing yourself to realize it. And it's the reason that, like, older people are wiser. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if, like, we can have all the wisdom in the world, but we just have to learn it ourselves and we have to go through it. Mm -hmm. Which is something I've, I've written about a lot before. But um, I realized that I just needed to do stuff. And... It's the same with, like, cleaning your house. You know, if it's, like, it's all really messy and you keep thinking about cleaning it and it just makes you feel like shit. Mm. And then you just do one thing and you feel so much better and it just, you start doing everything. And it's, that's a good metaphor for, like, finding yourself. It just doesn't come by mulling it over. It's almost pressure, like, you want the end result and you want to carefully plan and prepare and then get the perfect result immediately but it's kind of knowing that even if you decide to go down one road doesn't mean then you're forcing your way down that road the whole, your whole life you can easily of just course. fork off somewhere else yeah and also that those forks come naturally like mm. in ways that you wouldn't expect I mean like my graphic 
design dream, if you can call it a dream, ultimately led me to helping my friend with her business because I like started making her like for sale signs, you know? Yeah. And then she was ultimately a huge part of the reason that I ended up getting my job at Man Repeller. So it's just sort of, you know, when I was helping her, I decided to like start a more serious blog because she'd invited me onto her like YouTube channel and we started sharing our ideas. And I was like, you know, I should just start writing like my ideas down more. I had had a Tumblr for years, but I hadn't been like really giving myself, giving it a go. Mm. And um, is it at that point that when you started actually writing more regularly, and doing your blog, is that when you actually seriously thought, actually, like, I could try and do this as my career? I knew that I wanted the blog to be something I could send to potential employers. I also loved doing it, but I wanted to send it, um, not necessarily to be a writer, but just to be like, hey, look, I'm creative and thoughtful and um, have like my finger on the pulse even if I didn't <laughs> but just sort of those those softer skills that are really hard to show on a resume um I wanted the blog to like represent me but I didn't really feel ready to do that until I knew myself better and I think I was 25 when I started that blog so I was a little I had a I developed my perspective a little further from when I'd been like messing around mm. on tumblr at 21 or whatever and you've said that you were obsessed with Man Repeller from 2011. And yeah. you were really interested in working in there. And was that kind of your dream writing gig, would you say? Yes. I. It's actually so funny because I don't even think I knew I wanted to be a writer. Like, I, 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 I was scared of a full writing gig. I didn't know if I could actually do it. Mm. Um, I'd been, it's so silly because I've been writing long form. Like, of course I could do it. But I was so, I was just not exposed to this world. You know, I didn't even know what a pitch was. I didn't know that you could send pitches or I didn't know you could submit pieces to websites. It was all just this mysterious system to me. Um, even like right when I got the job. Like, I remember I, I asked, um, I'd been, I had this moment where I was listening to Leandra's podcast called Monocycle. I had been, I had spent a couple years while working in HR, sort of applying to jobs that were slightly more creative, being turned down, et cetera. And I was just a little bit lost. Um, and I heard her say like, I'm really stressed out because we're losing people on the team and we're hiring. And I remember being like, I remember exactly where I was. I was driving and being like, oh my God, maybe I could work there. <laughs> like it, it entered crazy. my mind in that moment. And so I immediately got in touch with somebody um, who I knew, knew someone else who had written freelance for them like years ago. And I was like, do you saw their emails? Like maybe you could intro me. It was such a loose connection, but um, she was kind enough to introduce me after I'd made, put all this thought into like a, I've made like a really embarrassing um, PowerPoint presentation <laughs> about well, why they should hire me. And then did you include samples? What was it that happened inside it, it? It was all like the same soft skills I was just mentioning. It was like, yeah. You know, I observe culture and I participate in it. I remember that being one slide. But it, they were all like, they were also collages, like using my design skills. And all of it came together in one. <laughs> Amazing piece of yeah, I did. I put like a bunch of my outfits from my blog. Because I was like, I was like, I'm interested in style. I'm also interested in writing. I'm interested in um, design. I was like trying to capture all that stuff because I was like, I knew I wasn't perfectly qualified for any one thing. So you could you could have had any role there. It was more just about being I was there. like, I'll do anything. I, I d didn't even know that there was a junior editor position opening because it hadn't been posted. So I didn't know what I wanted. I just wanted an in. 
yeah. and then they did they read your work and decided yes. that you would be perfect for that role I had linked out to a couple of my blog posts that I thought were similar to the Manor Power Voice and they um, and Leandra just offered me a contract role that's incredible so no interview just just based no on interview. your work no interview no that was, must be yeah. such a vote of confidence, though, to know that. It was. I, I since learned that they were just sort of desperate, that they'd been, like, they'd tried a couple people, and they'd been searching for a really long time, and I think they were just getting to a point where they needed to, like, just trial some people. It was a vote of confidence, for sure, and I'm still not sure what Leandra saw um, in my writing. You'll have to ask her at <laughs> I'll some have point. to ask her. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was just completely floored at that point. I told the story a million times, so anyone um, who's heard this before is going to be like, all right, next topic. No, it's, it's such an inspiring story, though, because it shows you sometimes if you don't ask, you don't get it. Like, you just have to put it out there and make it known. And and if and it's probably pretty clear from the fact that you made a presentation and you put all this effort in that you really wanted it as well. For sure. But, I mean, now that I'm exposed, especially I've been hiring for some roles on the Manipulator team, there are so many people doing that. It, I'm baffled that I cut through the noise at all, but um, and I'm I think it was a lot of timing and luck for sure, um, but so many people are doing that. I think that I was lucky actually, and that I didn't find what I wanted to do for a long time because my previous career, especially my HR career, really informed my perspective and like growth and maturity as a person. That I was much more ready to take on this role than than I would have been at 22 yeah. out of college. And it probably lends like a greater perspective to your writing and just the way that you conceive ideas and look at subjects. Yeah. And I just have a really different background from a lot of writers. Mm. So I think that, um, I mean, kind of, you know, definitely from the ones who were born and bred to be sort of New York creatives, which I feel sometimes sort of outside of. So obviously your life did dramatically change yes. when you left San Francisco. You broke up with your boyfriend you quit your job, you break your lease, and you just move to New York on a whim. How did it feel, like, packing up your bags and leaving a life that could have been pretty rosy? I was so terrified and excited at the same time. It's almost hard for me to connect with the emotion because it was definitely the most intense I'd ever felt anything, which is which was a good primer for New York because New York is sort of... Um, it puts you to the test in, like, how intensely you're... Um, open to feeling things everything's yes. turned to 11 around here <laughs> it really is thrill and sadness loneliness yeah. and excitement that, it reminds me of the piece that you wrote 10 things you've learned about living in new york like yeah. it's just such a i don't know you learn a lot about yourself and like you said it tests you to absolute limits in a way that you must have had moments where you thought my god why have i done this to myself oh my god absolutely I, and but at the end of the day i just wanted to find out which is mm. I think that's something that everyone could examine is like, what are you not willing to not find out about? Because we all choose, uh, whether we want to or not, we're all going to wonder about some stuff. Like we don't all get to know what it's like to be um, an Olympic athlete or like a movie star. There are just things that we don't get to experience. We're just one person, one lifetime. But we do get to choose to some extent what we keep as a fantasy and what we try out like you know if it's within our our bounds yeah. um and i think for me 
I could have I could have been okay in my other situation, but I just wasn't willing to not find out what it was like to live in New York, what it was like to pursue a creative career and what it was like to try being with someone else or be on my own, etc. Those were just things I like wasn't willing to sacrifice. And I like when I came to that conclusion, it was so urgent. You know, I spent so long being like, am I allowed to wonder these things? Maybe the grass is just always greener and I need to learn to be content with my life. Um, and I think that I probably could have learned that I would have needed to change. But at the time, I just have you ever heard the expression? This is a terrible expression, but um, money can't buy happiness. But I'd rather cry in Alexis. No, <laughs> where'd you get where'd you get that one from? I actually don't even remember, and it's really stupid. But it's this idea that like <laughs> you could have re- you could you could reimagine that and say New York won't make me happy, but I'd rather cry in New York. And I think that's how I felt at the time. I was like. Maybe New York will suck, but I need to find out because for whatever reason, I can't get it out of my head. And it would have been almost, even if you'd moved here and it hadn't turned out the way you wanted, it would never have been a failure because you'd have done it. And right. and you can always return to what you knew before. Like it wasn't like, I think the feeling of what if is probably, I know it's cheesy again, but it's like the worst feeling you could possibly have. And like you had this opportunity you didn't know where it was going to go. You didn't know how long you'd be here, but like it must've felt pretty exciting just to just take a ride and see what, see where it went. It was so exciting. And it was, it was kind of validating. So I'd spent all this time wondering. Um, I do want to make clear though. And this is something I wish someone said to me at the time is that it's also okay to leave those what ifs. And like, that can change you as a person. Like if I had just maybe over time, if I had just decided to accept that that wasn't a what if I was willing to explore anymore, I could have made that decision. It was just like, it wasn't coming to me naturally and I just couldn't get there. And I do think that there are certain truths for people um, that they just can't ignore. And I think that's often kind of like the gut, like your gut feeling, your pit in your stomach. Um, I do think that like you can change as a person and the rules can change and suddenly something you couldn't live without you can. So I think that, you know, everything's kind of flexible, but when you have those moments of clarity and you have opportunities, I also think it's worth seizing them. Yeah. Being bold. And if you can take the risk, do it. Yeah. This reminds me of the, the piece you wrote recently about this leap, which I absolutely loved about, and it's, it's called changing my life. Didn't change me as much as I thought it would. And there's just this one paragraph, which I really want to read. Earlier this summer, it occurred to me that despite uprooting my life in pursuit of more and finding it, I'm not sure the emotional tenor of my life has changed all that much. Hard days and incredible days still punctuate the ones that transpire as expected. Eagerness and trepidation still inform my perception of the future. Moments of insecurity still mixed with feelings of self-assuredness. How could it be that, although everything's changed, my mood is still the same? I just love that paragraph because I think it says everything that you were just saying is that you, you've moved and you've got a very different life, but it, the undercurrent is that you still experience highs, you still experience lows, and life could still can still be hard even if you are living what you would have conceived to be your dream life as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there are so many myths now about what it means to have a dream job and do what you love. Mm. Like, you never work a day in your life, which is absolutely not true in my experience. Um, 
or you know this idea that following your dreams means eternal happiness it just doesn't i mean i any time you read a profile of a person who's found um success in their chosen craft success is sort of a, an annoying term now i feel like it's been um skewed and beaten to death to mean something i wish it didn't but um you know artists who pursued their love in life writers people who sort of follow a career they love a lot of them are cranky and unhappy by the end of their lives i mean it's crazy whenever i read about these people who we hold up as beacons of pursuing their dreams a lot of them are very um damaged people yeah and it's that it's kind of that similar thing that the you know the central element or core of who you are doesn't change if you could put yourself in a new country in a new job but if you're still battling whatever inner demons, demons. you're yeah you're battling they just they'll follow you wherever you go and and i guess you know you are the still the same person here than you were in san francisco and you still experience the world in the same way. And like you've said in your piece, like you could have had a very happy life there. And maybe even if six months had passed, you may not have had that gut instinct anymore. And your life could just be very different, but still different doesn't mean bad. It could still have been good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I wrote about this once. It was called, um, if you can't find a purpose, just find a reason, which was um, sort of a rejection of this idea of purpose because... I mean, our whole society can't afford everybody the luxury to find some greater, higher purpose, you know? I mean, it's sort of a privilege to even ponder and pursue I that. I know, I feel that all the time. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege to even have time to be curious and existentially anxious. Um, I think just finding a really good reason for why you're doing something or examining whether you have one, it might be a path of less resistance, you know? Like, are you staying with someone because you think you should? Are you staying in a job because your dad wants you to be in it? I mean, those aren't reasons that would help me feel good about my decisions. But maybe you're staying in your job because it helps you support your hobbies. Or maybe you're in a relationship because this person makes you feel whole. You know, like if you can examine your situation and find reasons that feel really true and honest to you and reasons that you would shout from the rooftops and defend, that's that can be purpose i think that people get really caught up in this idea of like a commercial purpose or a success and um i mean there's so much evidence to show that like truly people find purpose in like helping their neighbor yeah in like, like relationships with other people and human absolutely. interaction it's like how much proof do we need that that's what yeah. makes us whole it's i mean i don't mean to discount the the deep and utter privilege of having a platform to share my ideas that frankly felt really trapped inside me for a long time. I don't mean to discount that because it's, it's truly an honor. And like, I feel really, really lucky all the time, but not everybody gets to be lucky. And so like, I just can't, it doesn't help me, you know, 
preaching that my path is the path to fulfillment is to me seems like a dead end and it seems like it just seems unhelpful to people because not everybody can do what I do yeah and to suggest that a job is enough to give you fulfillment and happiness is always a recipe for disaster because you'll always be putting it under an unnecessarily amount of pressure and scrutiny to fill your fill any voids that you have but actually everything else in your life can fill that too it doesn't need to just be your job and like you said it can be that it's supporting your hobbies or it's supporting a brilliant life with your family and holidays and yeah I think it's just making people realize that you don't need that there's no such thing as like a dream job that's going to just tick all the boxes and it's a magic like solution to life absolutely not and we were just talking about this earlier which is like there are downsides to having your passion be your job I mean I thought it was I thought I won the lottery when I got a job that allowed me to explore and write about and honor like literally everything that interested me you know at the time that's how it felt I've since sort of developed and realized that you know my interests are like a Venn diagram with manner players but at the time I was oh my I was like oh my god culture fashion music personal essays like this is all the stuff that I choose to think about and pursue on my own time and now I get to do it for my job what I didn't realize is that now everything I'm interested in is my job and it's like where do those lines kind of meet and blur what's me what's my job absolutely because you know well how do I unwind is it by watching a show no because that's fodder for my job is it um writing about my feelings in a journal also fodder for my job yeah everything is copy (laughs) everything is copy (laughs) and um that really was hard for a while it it was and it it was an it was a slightly isolating feeling too because it's such an annoying thing to complain about people just don't relate to that and it's such a privilege that I have that but I remember talking to my sister about this once and she was like, that's so interesting. That really comforts me because she has more of a job that, I mean, she really likes it. They celebrate her. She's challenged, but it's definitely not like her passion necessarily. It's not her like greater purpose in life or she probably doesn't see it that way. But, um, she had never heard this idea that actually like having a passion as a job takes some of the passion out of the passion. Yeah, they, they always say that, you know, writing should be like a mistress and you should treat it like a mistress and have the thrill and the enjoyment of going and doing it. And if you end up doing it full time, then sometimes it probably just ends up feeling like, you know, like a stale marriage and you don't want it to feel like that. So being able to keep it feeling fresh. That's and so interesting. I love that metaphor. <laughs> I mean, I don't personally have that relationship with writing. I mean, I do more now than I'm an editor, yeah, like, which is really nice. But... um But yeah, I mean, I don't blame people for wanting to do something they love for their job. I mean, we spend so many hours at work. And I don't forget how it feels to spend 50 hours somewhere doing something that's just okay. Like, that's a really hard situation to be in. But there are ways to make it better. I think that, like, doing a job that's not necessarily flashy, there's so many contexts you can do it in, you know? You can do it at a company that is doing work you really believe in at a size that's really fun and comfortable for you with people that keep you laughing every day and in a city that invigorates you and they're there without changing necessarily the your qualifications you can sort of 
you can mold your career to better fit you without necessarily abandoning it. Yeah. You know, I always think it's like buying a house. Like you're not going to get everything that you want. You may get a smaller backyard or you might not get the third bedroom, but as long as it meets the fundamental requirements and you have there's good elements to it, I think you can sometimes ignore the parts that aren't as great and like you said, mold it to what you want. And um, yeah, and I think it's good to realize that, you know, I think in an age of social media where everything looks perfect and there is perfection, it's easy to look at what you're doing and think that it isn't good enough or, you know, it's not a reflection of your true self or who you are. But we're not, you know, like I always say, we're not our jobs, like it's not our identities. So Of course not. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's just so much... I think what can be really draining is when you feel a huge part of yourself is not being honored in your life or reflected mm. in your life. And there are ways to, to change that, you know? I mean, in my past situation, I was, um, I worked on my blog. I learned graphic design. I was listening to podcasts all the time. I was very intellectually stimulated. I was um, arguably learning and pursuing learning more than I am now because I wasn't getting it from my job. Yeah. And so that in some ways propelled me to try other things and be curious and that was like an interesting way I I found out figured out how to honor kind of who I was and whenever I let that drop which is which happens a lot especially if you're working a job that's tiring Mm -hmm. and then I would start to feel somewhat empty And, and juggling all that side stuff did eventually tire me out and that was kind of a roller coaster I was running for a while but um I probably could have figured it out, you know. I think it's when people don't, they just, they're frozen and and sort of, they're either frozen in fear mm-hmm. or they're just apathetic and um, they've sort of given up. That's, I think, an easy place to slip into just feeling like you're not honoring yourself or unfulfilled. Yeah, I know. You kind of do want to feel like you're bringing the best of you to whatever you do every day because you said you're doing it a lot. And it's an awful feeling knowing that you're sitting in a chair for kind of 10 hours a day, just like selling your soul. But you're so right. A side hustle is something that or just a anyone hobby. start. Yeah, exactly. I've been thinking about this so much. Like, does anyone have hobbies anymore? Yeah, like, like when you're at school and you used to go to the different clubs every evening. Like just no one like does something anymore. that you do for the pure enjoyment of it. Not yeah. because you hope that it turns into something, but just purely because you like it. It's a sign of self-respect because... Yeah. Do you think that you deserve to enjoy your life? Then, like, figure out how. And then it see, make, then you'll see your job in a different light because it's, f- like, funding or it, you know, it means that you're able to do these things. And it mm-hmm. just changes your relationship to money and to work, which I think is really important. So I want to talk a bit about Man Repeller now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fast forward to where you are right now. And you are now the deputy editor and you've kind of gone through a few roles. When you started, you were obviously junior editor, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then did you move in to become an editor? Digital like, editor, digital yeah. Editor. Which is kind of just editor. Yeah. And how has your role evolved over time and what do you do kind of for the most of your time now? So I started as a junior editor and I was mostly just writing. Um, writing, 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 so much writing, oftentimes up until 2am writing. My God, how many stories did you have a quota a day? Yeah, I typically, I typically wrote, in my peak, I was writing 10 to 15 stories a week. My God. So sometimes, so it was like two or three a day. 
and, and before obviously you were, you were just writing your blog was that just kind of that number oh what you're doing a day you were doing in a week almost before yes I was doing one story a week oh my on my blog that well, was sort of my of promise fire. to myself <laughs> oh believe me I was panicked I, I just didn't like I said I just didn't think I was a writer and now I see myself very differently or I see my relationship with writing really differently especially now as an editor but at the time I was like this is completely out of my wheelhouse. So I, you know, I was staying up till two or three because I, it took me so long to finish pieces. Oh my God. Did you, could you ever kind of say you're done or did you always feel like it could be better? Like, was there a point where you had to just be done with it? Honestly, I didn't learn to do that for a long time. And that's why I was up so late. I, I had such a high standard, which makes me laugh now because if I go back, I'm like, Ooh, (laughs) I thought I had a high standard. I mean, it was a high standard for me, which yeah, I think is, is always sort of something that really helped me um, throughout my whole life. Is I've always had a very high standard for myself. It's almost hurt. It's also hurt me. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think I always just wanted what I turned into be the best it could be, and that meant sometimes um, just really toiling over a particular sentence. Obviously, you've written thousand, like over a thousand pieces yeah. since you started. Oh my god! And you said that you, you know, you, if you look back on your earlier pieces, you'd probably think they're obviously incredibly different to where you are at right now. How do you think that your writing has changed and your voice? Like, do you think you've you found it in in, in a sense from just writing so much? Hmm. I I think it will always be changing, and if it doesn't, I will feel like I'm failing somehow. I hope to continue to evolve um, in the same way that my writing from two years ago might make me cringe. I hope that my writing today eventually makes me cringe (laughs) just because that will mean I'm growing. But um, I think I've gotten, you know, you learn, especially in editing, um, sort of like what beats make the most sense or are most effective. And so I think a lot of my writing is... um, from before is a lot less efficient you know it's sort of circling around a topic or it's a little self-indulgent my writing is probably still a little bit self-indulgent um but I try some of those are some of those little lessons I've picked up that hopefully are reflecting in my writing that it's just a little cleaner Mm -hmm. a little more just pushed a little further sort of like is this actually the best way to say something or am I also just scratching the surface here and um but being able to sort of present my thoughts and ideas in process is a huge privilege at Man Repeller specifically because we're, we give ourselves the freedom to publish things that aren't necessarily final. You know, they're malleable. Mm-hmm. We talk about this all the time. Like there are pieces that we just flat out disagree with now that we ourselves wrote a year ago. That's amazing. <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's how humans are too. And I yeah, think that's exactly. our, our readers are like that too. Are there some things that you just wouldn't ever write about? Like, because I mean, it's all about kind of being, it's like relatability, being honest and authentic, which I think makes Man Repeller so kind of important to young women. But you obviously kind of must feel some kind of duty to be very honest. But are there some things that you just feel that you could never talk about or it's like just too personal for you to talk about? I don't know if there are things that are too personal, honestly. I mean, there's probably certain topics I would use more um, vague language around you know I mean I've Mm -hmm. written about my sex life not in really graphic terms so I guess you could say that's something I probably wouldn't do but that's not something Manor Peller would do anyway Um, 
I think I'm kind of willing to go anywhere so long as I think that um, there's like a lesson that people might kind of relate to or mm-hmm. that might resonate on a more broader yeah. level. I mean, there are certainly things that I, I'm not qualified to write about for sure. And I think that I've learned more and more what those things are because right now it's it's so important to kind of let people um, give people a platform who you know, weren't necessarily ushered into these roles as easily by nature of just like systemic oppression or just like the way our society is set up. And so I think there were things I wrote about that now I would definitely assign out to someone else, you know, just Mm. people who are kind of smarter on the topic or have more experience or perspective to offer. And when you're writing, how do you stop yourself from writing something that you think someone would want to read versus something that you actually want to say? I don't know if I run up against that too much. Maybe because Manorpeller um, values honesty so mm. much. And, um, so you always more, approach a piece with honesty at the kind of core or heart, I guess. I think so. I mean, if there's something I think that doesn't benefit anybody to read, I won't run it. You know, that's, that's something I'll keep to myself, which ha- plenty of those things kind of run through mm. my head on a given day. And I might not share it because I don't think I'm educated enough to speak on it because it's not, I'm not confident in that opinion or, um, or it's just not something people need to read right now. Like those are, those are times I'll stop myself for sure. But once I've decided a piece is kind of worth working out, um, I tend to kind of go about it fearlessly in a way. I mean, I think at some point in my twenties, I decided it was like really cool to be vulnerable. I can't even remember. I was trying to think back about who were the sort of people that helped identify that. And I can't even really remember. I think it was just the sort of amorphous population of women on the internet that were starting to be more honest, but I kind of, something just clicked and I started being really honest and just realizing that whatever I felt other people felt and Therefore, it wasn't embarrassing. Mm. Do you ever need a sense check or do you just use your friends as the kind of barometers or do you just know that even if you haven't spoken to someone else about it, if you're feeling it, you know someone else is probably feeling it too? Probably both. I mean, I think on the the story about friendship that I wrote. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah. That feels like one of the stories that really did garner so many comments underneath and it resonated so much. It's called if anyone wants to look it up does everybody have a friendship complex or just me? Tell me a bit about kind of how that came about and what the sentiment was. That one came from a long period of unrest for me, kind of centered around social insecurity in general, which is something I've sort of had for a long time. I think, you know, in school, I always had like one best friend who I really clung to. And that person sometimes changed. I mean, I had sort of, like I mentioned, that trio. We were sort of best friends for like 10 years, but there came a time where, I think it was around high school, where we just sort of parted ways. Like they kind of, they fit in slightly better with the kind of popular kids, and I was kind of going the sports route. And after that, I felt like I was always in pursuit of sort of having my people. And who those people were seemed to rotate so fast that it really kind of, made me think there was something wrong with me. And, you know, I think back now, there's like a group in high school that there are a lot, a lot of them are friends and I'm not really in touch. I have a group, two different groups from college where that's the case. Um, 
a group from post-college where that's the case. And these people are just like, or you know what? It could just be social media, but they all seem in touch. And it, the, I have the exact same story. Really? And like, yeah, I, you're always in a group at the time, but it never feels quite... I, I always think there's a tribe somewhere out there waiting for me. And I've just not met them or found them yet. And I always kind of... When you go to university or college, you think there's a group there. And it, the way that it's portrayed in films is like, you're going to be part of a huge gang of people. That's never the reality. And I have lost touch with a lot of people. I've moved around a lot. And I'm the same. I've always had close friends in different pockets, different places, never quite felt like I've found my group or my people. Um, Which so yeah. many people feel like that. And I obviously discovered that through writing this. And I think there's almost a metaphor to be drawn there with relationships, because I think in both circumstances, we really highly value longevity and this idea that yeah. a relationship's only worth something if it lasts for a really long time. And I think that's that's... Um, a trope that carries through friendship as well. And I think this sort of came from in the first sort of burst of first uh, or third wave feminism, female friendship was suddenly really, really celebrated. This was when everybody started realizing that like the Bechdel test was really important and that female characters weren't talking to each other enough and um, female friendship just wasn't celebrated enough in the media. And so this sort of burst in the other direction of celebrating female friendships and female crews and squads, there was just this huge cultural uprising of honoring the sort of complex, beautiful um, female friendship. And I think that put a lot of pressure on a lot of people. And that was just sort of a, a it was a new iteration on the kind of crew ideal which was something yeah. that was around for a long time I mean everything is just like a group of friends that are always yeah. together which is just not how normal life works I think what I had to realize was a lot of those friendships were really perfect and special in the time that I had them and I let them go for a reason at the time and mm. I mean I can think it's not that these people are like dead to me we I have like some communication with with them and stuff but it's just their role changes in your life doesn't it yeah, and I think I had to realize that I was never going to have a crew because that's just not my personality. I've mm. tried really hard um, <laughs> to make crews. It never quite worked. <laughs> Me too. I always like imagine having like a big, massive gang of people, like going to a festival or being at a pub. I would take like four people. <laughs> yeah, but it's just it's just not. I just function. I'm a conversationalist. Like I like having a couple of people and having a really good conversation versus sitting in like a group of 20 struggling to be heard it's just 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 not me and it's like I'm so it's so the same like for a long time I thought it was something wrong with me and like I wasn't like everyone else but now I realize and I just celebrate the fact that it's just who I am um and like I'm just different to other people and I'm sure and then but there's lots of other people like you and lots of other people so that read many your people piece. like that and people everyone just feels insecure I mean I think mm. I've had to learn you know, now I have friendships that are really important to me and I do have to learn, and it's sometimes it is an uphill battle, to uphold them, for sure. Um, there are parts of, like, in the friendship arena that I do need to push myself on and there are other parts I need to just forgive myself and accept who I am. And a huge part of that was just examining what, what friendship even really meant to me. It was so culturally informed, like, media and this idea of, like, brunch every Sunday, sex in the city. Yeah, it, it, They're just crazy narratives that honestly didn't fit into my life. And it was funny because as I was going through this sort of panic, um, as I wrote in the piece, I realized, oh, I've been in New York for two years. 
I don't have a crew yet. Um, I started, I don't know what exactly was the catalyst for the spiral, but it, it was a couple of months where I found myself t telling everybody about it because I found that, you know, talking about these vulnerabilities often helps. So I was just really leaning into it. Yeah. And not only did I learn that everybody felt this way, almost everyone I talked to, not that everybody does, but it just by chance, everyone I talked to felt this way. And also I had these conversations with friends. They, they didn't always look exactly like the types in the movies. You know, one was like an old coworker who I hadn't talked to in six months, but we had like a three hour dinner that completely filled me up to the brim. You know, one was um, a friend of my boyfriend's who I hadn't really, um, I'd always thought of as his friend. And like, you know, we spent two hours in a corner of a party chatting and talking about our vulnerabilities. And like one was my brother and sister who are two of my best friends, as lame as that sounds. And um, one was a coworker. One was like a friend I um, have hung out with three times since I moved to New York. And just like, but it was sort of a disparate group, but I had had these like lovely in-depth conversations and I had all these people sort of around me being wonderful and supportive. And I was like, this is what friendship is. I, I just don't know what I was thinking to say that I didn't have friends and you know I have you know my brother has a huge group of friends that I've always called his friends even though they're all my friends too yeah same for for my boyfriends like my co-workers are just co-workers they're not friends you know it, it's just a you silly you had to reconceive I had to re friendship yeah. was I had to you. recontextualize mm. all of these relationships and and I so I ended up writing this piece and um I don't know if I've hmm there's probably three pieces that I've had such an intense uh, reaction that shocked me, and that was one of them. I couldn't believe how many people reached out to me saying it was exactly how they felt. I, I definitely thought it would resonate with some people like us. Yeah. But I wasn't, um, I didn't realize that it was going to be, I mean, it still might be a small portion of the population, you know, Man Repeller is still a kind of a niche publication, but um, it felt like a ton. And we're now back to where we started. And you've actually already answered this on the Meet the Team section on the Man Repeller website. Oh. And in a quote, it says, when you grow up, that's the actual question. It says, you want to be an author with a cosy home full of soft blankets, cool hats, and flat-faced animals. I think you're kind of already doing that, really. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, I don't know why I said cool hats. I don't even wear hats. You know I disagree with my former self that was two years ago. But the flat face animal thing That's is that you, you have one. And true, true, true. Yes. Um, Soft blankets. <laughs> yeah, that's always true. That's very yeah. core to me from the beginning. We'll just scratch the hats then. Soft stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, I hope that that answer continues to evolve as it already has. Um, I think when I grow up, I want to still be I want to continually be open to new ideas and reinterpretations of the world in whatever form that may take I would love you know more concrete I would love to write a book but I've been re-examining why it's such a it's such a weird goal it's like well why do you want to write a book just so your name's on a hardcover it just feels yeah, so like what comes first? yeah what like comes the idea first? Or, the, or the reason the, the wanting to write a book it, right and I think I mean there's some part of me that I think just my love of writing informs that goal. Just I want to sit down with a really long piece mm. that I believe in and work on. 
but I'm changing so fast that I'm like, or my ideas are always changing and my perspective. I'm like scared of solidifying it. And then committing it to print. And then, <laughs> committing yeah. It to print. But I still would really like to do that. I love to write longer form and I want to push myself to more often remove myself from pieces. I, that might not be true in five years, but it's kind of what I'm focused on now because it's helping me develop. But yeah, I think I want to keep exploring my my mind and the world around me and keep honoring the relationships around me that are most important and remembering that those are the most fulfilling parts of my life. That's a great answer. Thank you and, so much. And finally, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well, my Instagram handle is Haylemer. No one can pronounce that, by the way. They think it's Haylemer. Yeah, I've definitely make been reading sense. it in my head as that as well. <laughs> um, oh, it's because I love uh, lemurs. Chrysalians. Ah. So it's H-A-L-E-M-U-R. So it's H-A and then the word lemur. Mm-hmm. Um, my Bailana Manorpeller is always a good spot to check out my writing. Yeah. It's where all of it is. Yeah, you, you click can... on your name and then see everything. And also your cat too. Yeah, mm-hmm. my cat has an Instagram account that's yeah. sorely ignored. But I'm going to get back on it. It's every, bug.tv. It's definitely worth a follow. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure. Honestly, it kind of felt like, again, personal therapy to me <laughs> to just talk this through. It's therapy to me the, too. Oh, so I'm, I really appreciate you inviting me on. It was oh, such no, a treat. Thank you for coming. And yeah, I, I can't wait for people to hear this. Mm.